It's been said that all advertising is intended to make you dissatisfied. To make you dissatisfied with who you are and what you have. Therefore, you just have to have the product or the service that is being sold. But in recent years, I've seen a notable turn in advertising. It no longer caters just to your dissatisfaction. It plays on your insecurities and on your fears. One of the reasons I don't listen to much talk radio anymore is because all the ads seem to be about, what, identity theft, storing food for a crisis, buying gold for whatever's coming down. You need home security systems, internet security systems, how to protect yourself from every conceivable thing that threatens your security. And then when the ads are over, the talk show host comes back. He's talking about economic security, national security, homeland security, health care, social security, job security, airport security, TSA, which means the Transportation Security Administration. I just can't take it. Now, if you think about it, most people also hope for some sort of eternal security. If they do not believe in heaven and health, hell, they, they believe and hope that death will be the end of their existence. They hope that death will usher them into some impersonal, unconscious nothingness, or they hope that death will recycle them through another lifetime in an endless chain of lives better than the ones before. That's called karma, where you do something in one life and that's supposed to help you in the next life. But the Apostle Paul has already unequivocally declared in his letter to the Romans that whether people realize it or not, or whether they admit it or not, all men and women, even the most pagan reprobates, know something of God's eternal attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature. Romans 1.20 Every person, Jew and Gentile alike, has the witness of heart and conscience by which he is able to discern basic right from wrong. Romans 2.14 that all people know to some degree that they don't live up to God's standard of righteousness and are worthy of death. Romans 1.32 Most people have this gnawing fear that God is going to judge their sin, that one day they'll be held accountable for the way they have lived, and Scripture says they will live and die only once, and after that comes the judgment. Hebrews 9.27 So people instinctively hope that in one way or another they can escape that judgment. And whether they realize it or not, or whether it's consciously or unconsciously, whether it's religiously or irreligiously, along with everything else that brings insecurity into this world, they have to deal with their spiritual security. They want assurance that they will not be punished for their evil and the bad things that they've done. So they have devised all kinds of false ideas and vain philosophies to try to escape the punishment that they know innately, deep inside of them, they know that they deserve. Some people build up a false security, a false sense of spiritual security. They try to convince themselves that they're really basically good people and that a just God could not condemn bad people or good people they believe their good works, their good intentions outweigh the bad. They've done some bad things, but sure, overall, the good things outweigh the bad. And in balance, they believe they're pleasing and acceptable to God. Others deal with their spiritual insecurity by believing that God is too loving to send anybody to hell. You heard that before? Yeah, that God will ultimately save even the most wicked of sinners. That's called universalism. Everybody makes it. 
And still others insist there is no God and that the idea of divine judgment is just plain ridiculous. It's ludicrous. And these beliefs are so common that those who put their security in them find reassurance in a large number of other people that do the same. Hey, lots of people believe the way I do. Just look at Facebook. All my friends believe this stuff. And so they even design religions to affirm these views. In essence, we've just hit on why there are so many religions and differing views in the world. Simply, Satan comes along and plays to people's fears and insecurities. If you really want to get right with God, the lie says, if you really want to please God or appease the gods, then you have to do whatever the religion demands of, of you. In more than one instance, Satan has appeared as an angel of light. He's even masqueraded as Gabriel and Michael the archangel, establishing complete new religions in the world. Satan has also proved to be a master masquerader by infiltrating Christianity playing to people's fears and insecurities through legalism and, and Phariseeism. We have the cults who preach another Jesus, receive a different spirit, accept a different gospel. And the Apostle Paul said of those who promote such things, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. Well, in our study of Paul's letter to the Romans in chapter 2, and we're still on the main first main point. So if you're doing the outline this morning, we're not going to get to the whole outline. This is one of those times we run out of time before we run out of outline. That happens once in a while. <laughs> and then I don't give you enough space. And some of the, That's just telling you how my week went, went this week. <laughs> But in Romans chapter 2, we come to a false security system, a system that delivers false assurances because it cannot deliver on what it promises. In fact, it brings just the opposite of what it promises. In Jesus' day, in the Apostle Paul's day, as he wrote this letter to the Romans, the Jews had placed their spiritual security in all the wrong places. Instead of placing their security in their Messiah, Jesus Christ, whom they rejected, instead of trusting Christ for their security and for their salvation, they trusted in their erroneous system of legalism and Phariseeism that had developed within Judaism over hundreds of years. Thomas Schreiner explains in his commentary on Romans where we are in, in Paul's letter to the Romans here in chapter 2 as it pertains to the Jews, because this section is about the Jews. He wrote, the primary purpose of Romans 2 is to prove that the Jews are guilty before God, for they transgressed the revelation they received, just as Gentiles rejected the revelation they received. And then Charles Simeon adds that Paul is countering a pervasive Jewish view at the time. The Jews believed that no Jew could perish except through apostasy or idolatry. And if they didn't worship other idols or they didn't totally get away from the faith, they couldn't perish. But then they said that no Gentile could be saved but by subjecting himself to the institutions and observance of the Mosaic ritual. That is the law of Moses, 
We still have that in Christianity in, in uh, Luke chapter 15, the Jerusalem council where there was these Judaizers, we call them, that came to the council and said, a person has to be circumcised in what? In order to be saved. They're Gentiles up there in Corinth and Ephesus. They've got to be circumcised or they can't be saved. That was the typical Jewish thinking. So they believe that by just being born a Jew and sticking with it, not apostatizing, getting clear away with it, clear away from it, or by worshiping idols, they were automatically in with God forever. Now that sounds like pretty good security. Born a Jew, in with God. But it's false security because it's not true. It's a lie that smells of the smoke of the fires of hell. So Paul is arguing that being Jewish doesn't get you any special favors come judgment day. And this doesn't just apply to the Jews of Paul and Jesus' day. It applies to everyone today who trust in themselves or they trust in their religious system to be right with God. They trust in themselves or they trust in what they do in their religious system to be right with God. People place their trust and they think they find their security in their religion, in their rituals, and in what they do and don't do as dictated by their religion. Now we're on point Roman numeral two, in case you're wondering. <laughs> so I'm going to give you a really good word for all of this. There's a really good word for all of this. Anyone who trusts in themselves or trusts in their religious system for their spiritual security is by biblical definition a hypocrite. Anyone who trusts in themselves or trusts in their religious system for their spiritual security is a hypocrite. Hypocrisy, presenting ourselves as something that we know we're not, is one of the most subtle and dangerous of sins and one of the biggest lies of the devil that people believe. Eight times Jesus thundered against the religious leaders of his day. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. He warned the disciples, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Leaven, if you cook, you know what it does. Leaven spreads subtly and pervasively until the whole lump of dough is affected, and, and so does hypocrisy. It's a perpetual danger for the religious people, especially for religious leaders. And it's, this is the root sin that, that Paul is confronting in our text in Romans chapter 2. It's hypocrisy because no one can live up to it. No one can live up to the exacting demands. But the hypocrite pretends that he or she does and stakes their entire spiritual security on it. And then judges everybody else we've looked at before on their exacting standards. They can't even live up to themselves. Now, the Greek word translated hypocrite is hypocrites. It's a transliteration, really. Hypocrites in ancient Greece referred to a play actor, somebody who gets on a stage and, and acts a part. Now, the hypocrites literally was the large mask that the actors wore over their faces so they could play a certain part. I remember there used to be programs on old black and white TV. I tell my kids that when I grew up, everything was black and white. I didn't see color TV and see in color until I got to college. I go, wow, that's pretty cool. Then I came home one Christmas, my parents had a color TV and saw everything. But back in those days, there's a program that came on that, remember, had the drama faces. There was the smiling face and then there was the frown face. That's the hypocrites, putting on a mask. What the hypocrite does is hide who they really are. 
So they look good on the outside. They do all kinds of good things. But as Jesus warned them, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Now, in Romans chapter 2, using the religious Jews of his day as an example, the Apostle Paul points out two spiritual results of hypocrisy. This is what happens. First of all, hypocrisy deceives the hypocrite, and then hypocrisy dishonors God. We'll have to leave that second part, hypocrisy dishonors God, until next time. But today, hypocrisy deceives the hypocrite. You know, if you've ever been deceived by a con artist, either in person or on one of those TV ads, and, you know, the reason he got your money is because at the time you didn't know you were being deceived, right? If you had known, you wouldn't have given him his money, your money. And once you find out, if you're like me, oftentimes you're embarrassed that it happened, so you intend to cover it up in order to what? Save face. So people won't think less of you. You got take, took by that guy, you know. Hypocrites. Don't get into hypocrisy by thinking, I'd really like to bring God's judgment down on myself by being a hypocrite. That, that sounds like the way to go. Rather, due to pride, they think, you know, I want people to respect me. If they knew what I was really like, they wouldn't like me. So I need to keep up a good front. Besides, everybody does that to some extent, right? So he tries to impress others, forgetting that God examines the heart. He ends up deceiving himself in the worst way. And at the heart of this process is the basic principle. Hypocrisy deceives the hypocrite because he knows the truth, but he does not obey it. James chapter 1 verse 22 states that principle. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Delude themselves. I looked it up yesterday in my Bible dictionary. It means delude <laughs> themselves. They deceive themselves. These Jews whom Paul confronts felt secure before God. We've got it all together. Our, our system and all these kind of things. And because we're, we're the Jews, we have this religious heritage. And we have God's law. He gave the law to us. And, and we can confidently teach that to others but they were deluded because they were hearers of the law, but not doers of it. So please turn once again to Romans chapter 2 at verse 17. <coughs> Excuse me. The second chapter of Romans, the 17th verse. In just verse 17 alone, we find the first three reasons that the hypocrite is deceived. And then we'll look at a couple more. But the first has to do with the Jews' election, that Jews are called of God. They are God's chosen people. He says in verse 17, But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God, there we see the three reasons, but the hypocrite is deceived because he may know the doctrine of election it's called, to be chosen, to be called by God, but they misapplied it. So first Paul hits the Jew for taking pride in his birth as a Jew. There's an interesting thing, you don't need to turn to it, but when Jesus confronted the Jews with being enslaved to sin and in Matthew chapter, no, it's John chapter 5, uh, when Jesus said, you're enslaved to sin, they said, no, we're Abraham's children. 
They appealed to being sons of, of Abraham. And they even made the ridiculous statement. This is how deluded they were. We have never been enslaved to anyone. <laughs> yeah, I can see the eyebrows going up. Well, what about the Egyptians for 400 years? And then you had the Babylonians for 70 years. Then you had the Persians after that. And then when you were back in your own country, you had the Greeks, the Syrians, and the Romans. <laughs> That's how deluded they were. They knew that they were God's elect, but they grossly misapplied it. Moses had told the Jews, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for what? His own possession. Out of all the people on the face of the earth, God chose you. But the Lord knew that because of this, they were prone to get puffed up with pride, thinking that God chose them because they deserved it. I remember in seminary, I learned a little thing that said, how odd of God to choose the Jews. <laughs> Not the greatest of people, not have anything going for them. But Moses goes on to tell them that God didn't choose them because it was anything in them. It wasn't they were smarter or better or anything of anybody else. In fact, they were the smallest of the earth. But rather, God chose them because he loved them. He chose them because he was going to show his faithfulness to them. His covenant promises. Remember his chesed, his loving kindness. He chose them to bestow all of this upon them. And it's really no different today for us as Christians. Did you know that just as God chose the Jews to be his people, he chooses us to be his people in Christ Jesus? Remember that when we studied that in 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? Because we had so much going for us. Oh, wow, look at those people down at Grace Baptist Church. They are so good. They have such a great Sunday school. I'm going to choose them. No, he chose us so that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Please turn over to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 4, for a minute. We see this the same truth. Ephesians, chapter 1, the fourth verse, page... 1429. Here Paul is telling us about our calling as believers beginning in, I think I'll begin in verse 3 of Ephesians chapter 1, the third verse. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we would be what holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ himself, according to the kind intention of his will. Now, God did not choose us because he saw or foresaw anything of merit in us. Rather, he did it to display his unmerited favor. His grace so that we would glorify him. See that in verse six to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. The beloved is Christ Jesus. 
So if you boast in being one of God's chosen people, you've missed the whole point of the doctrine of election. Knowing that God chose us in spite of our sin and while we were yet sinners, that should humble us. He chose me. You know, I was a little tiny kid the whole time I was growing up. I was only five foot tall and weighed 90 pounds when I played freshman football at Emmett Junior High. <laughs> Just a, a little kid. All that to say is whenever we split up and chose to get teams on the playground, who was the last one chosen? It was little Billy. <laughs> God chose us. He chose us, not because of anything, but he looked at us and he chose us so he could bestow his grace, his love upon us. It's a good thing he didn't do it for my football ability when I was a little kid. And secondly, in Romans chapter 2, verse 17, the hypocrite is deceived because he knows God's commandment but does not obey them at a heart level. Verse 17 again. But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law. Paul says of the Jew, you rely on the law. Now all the things that Paul is going to mention in these verses are good in and of themselves. There were many advantages to being a Jew. It's good to rely on God's law if you truly obey it. It's good to know his will and be morally discerning. The problem was that the Jews relied on the fact that they had received God's law and somehow that would magically protect them even though they didn't obey it. Uh, Paul probably had in mind in the prophet Micah where the prophet rebuked the Jewish leaders of the day for their sin and then he said to them, yeah, you lean on the Lord saying, is not the Lord in our midst? Certainly calamity will not come upon us. The same word that's translated they lean is the same one as they rely here. They rely on the law. We, we rely on the law. Certainly that, that's good enough. So the Jews of Paul's day thought that relying on the law would protect them from judgment, even though they disobeyed it. And of course, the Jews did obey some things of the external requirements of the law. They were fastidious and, and about ceremonial cleanliness. They meticulously tithed even their table spices. They fasted and prayed at all the stipulated times. But Jesus rebuked them because they honored God with their lips and what they did, but their hearts were far from him. They knew God's commandments, but they just kept those that could be seen by other men. So they looked so spiritual. They didn't seek to please God from the heart. Hypocrisy is all about maintaining outward appearances with no regard to obedience from the heart. Thirdly, in verse 17, we see that the hypocrite is deceived because he boasts in God not to honor God, but to honor himself. Verse 17 again, but if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God. Paul says, boast in God. Now, again, this is a good thing to do in of itself. The prophet Jeremiah says, thus says the Lord let not a wise man boast of his wisdom and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. Got a lot of that going on today, don't we? But let him who boasts of this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice and righteousness 
For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. And the Apostle Paul added in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So our boasting in the Lord is a good thing if our aim is to give him all the glory for our salvation, for our justification, for our sanctification. But Paul's Jewish readers were boasting in God in the sense that they were elevating themselves above the pagan Gentiles who did not know God. It was a form of spiritual pride where they said, we know the only true God, but you don't. So we're better than you are. They were like those super spiritual saints or that faction in Corinth. Some were saying, well, I'm of Paul. Others were saying, I'm of Apollos or I'm of Cephas. That's Peter. But some boasted, I am of Christ. But they were boasting in God not to honor God, but to honor themselves. And they were deceived by their hypocrisy. And we find a fourth way that a hypocrite is deceived in verse 18 of Romans chapter 2. Actually, verse 17. 17th, begin with the 17th verse again and go on to the 18th verse. But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential being instructed in the law. Now, the hypocrite is deceived because he knows theological fine points. He knows the law. He can discuss the law. He can talk about that. But not for the purpose of obedience, but for the purpose of impressing others. Paul says, you know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law. Again, these are good things and in and among themselves. We should be diligent to study God's word that we may know his will. The word teaches us discernment so that we can approve of things that are essential or literally excellent. And that's referring to moral discernment. We know the things that are essential, that are excellent. And we know the things that aren't. Having discernment to know what is right and what is wrong. We, we need that. But as Charles Hodge comments here, it was not their moral judgments, but their moral conduct that was at fault. It is good to be instructed out of the law. That is God's word. Biblical and theological knowledge is a good and necessary thing. And that helps us to know God and know his ways as he has revealed himself to us. But the goal of understanding theology and understanding the Bible is never to win arguments. Never to win arguments. Or to impress others with great knowledge. I remember when those, uh, those young men in white shirts and ties that called themselves elders and knocked on our doors, you know. I could take them apart with God's word and just leave them bloodied and laying on the sidewalk, as it were, from, from God's word. But that was wrong because I never gave them what it took to receive Jesus Christ as their Savior. The goal of understanding theology is not to win arguments. Rather, it's to humble our hearts before God and lead us to worship Him more fervently and obey Him more thoroughly. Now, in verses 19 through 22 of Romans chapter 2, Paul now turns to how his Jewish readers applied these spiritual privileges. And we learn a final way that hypocrisy deceives us. The hypocrite is deceived because he confidently teaches others, but he does not apply the word to himself. Verse 19. 
And you are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. According to Isaiah chapter 42, verses 6 and 7, God appointed Israel to be a light to the nations, to open blind eyes. If they had done it with humility, that would have been the proper thing to do. But, you know, everyone who teaches God's word must first apply it to himself or to to herself. Knowledge without obedience puffs up with pride. That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. Knowledge without obedience puffs us up with pride, which is really the root of, of hypocrisy. Spiritually proud hypocrites who have a lot of knowledge without obedience look down on the blind, the foolish, the immature, the people that they teach. But when you apply the truth to yourself first, it humbles you as you realize where you've come from and what you have in Christ Jesus and that he did it all and how much you still need to grow. Pastor Stephen Cole said that he once wrote a short article on preaching called The Gospel Boomerang. The Gospel Boomerang. And to quote him, he said, I pointed out how preaching is a hazardous occupation. You aim your biblical arrows at your congregation, intending them to hit them where they need to change. But you quickly discover that God's word is not just an arrow, it's a boomerang. It comes back and clobbers the preacher with how he needs to change. As John Calvin said, it'd be better for the preacher to break his neck going up into the pulpit if he does not take pains to be the first to follow God. Before we teach others, we need to apply the word to our own hearts, unquote. And that's what Paul goes on to confront these Jewish leaders about in verses 21 and 22. He says, You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Three things, theft, adultery, robbing temples, or it might be translated sacrilege in your Bible. These are just illustrations of the kinds of sins that apparently were very common among the Jewish people, particularly among the Jewish leaders. And so I want to talk about these three typical sins briefly, and then we're going to leave the rest of the points in the outline till next time. Look at the first sin listed in verse 21, stealing. You preach against stealing, do you steal? Now, I want to remind you, in case you wondered, they did steal. And that's why this illustration is so appropriate to mention. There are many instances recorded in the Old Testament, particularly in Isaiah and Ezekiel, where they stole from the needy. They stole from people and widows who needed it, and they thought they got away with it. In fact, they even stole from God. Malachi chapter 3 says that they robbed God by not bringing their tithes and their offerings into the storehouse. It was characteristic of them that they were thieves. Now, it's not only true of those in the past generation, but even in the generation to which our Lord Jesus came, but to which the Apostle Paul wrote, when Jesus came into the temple the first time to cleanse the temple, he said, 
My father's house is to be a house of prayer, but you have made it a what? A den of what? Thieves. They were ripping people off. You know, they were cheating them with the money changer because you had to convert your your national money or your Roman money to temple money. And so there was a great exchange by which they charged people. And then you brought your lamb or whatever for sacrifice. They say, oh, that's not good enough. There's a blemish on it. And so you'd have to buy one at a high rate from them. You had no choice. And then they would take your lamb and sell it to the next poor slob that, that came along. In the 23rd chapter of Matthew, with all the woes, there's that scaling denunciation of the Pharisees in Matthew 23. Jesus says in verse 14 to them, you devour widows' houses. I knew a guy like that one time. He was so spiritual and so good. You know, he would tell widows in our community, you know, just sign everything over to me and I'm going to take care of you. And he was ripping them off. But he played Christian music constantly in his shop. If you walked into his shop, you thought he was a good guy. They literally extorted people. They robbed from people. And Paul is saying the same thing to them that Jesus said, the Old Testament prophet said, you have the law, but what good does that do when you don't obey the law? You preach against stealing, then you go around stealing. And secondly, you say in verse 22, you commit adultery, you shouldn't commit adultery, but then you commit adultery. You know, one of the ways that they committed adultery in those days is they had a system of divorce where they could divorce the wife just for burning the dinner. And had all these kinds of things. Give her a certificate of divorce. Marry another. It was nothing less than what? Legitimized adultery. You know, there's one thing about legalism and Phariseeism. You know, these systems have no ability to restrain sin. That's what Paul said of the law. Remember that? It, It can't restrain sin. It just gives us knowledge of the law. All it does is intensify sin. Anybody caught up in a legalistic system where they're trying to gain God's favor by their own works find themselves utterly unable to restrain the flesh. And then the third illustration Paul gives in verse 22 is interesting. He says you hate idols. And of course, that's definitely of the Lord. The Lord said you have no other gods before me. And, uh, you know, it's ever since the captivity, the Jews never fell back into idolatry, which was the sin that took them into captivity. But then he says but. You rob temples. Did they really rob temples? You know, we don't have time to go into all of it, but there are historical references where, according to the historian Josephus, through chicanery and some trickery, some Jews talked a noble Roman lady to give a bunch of money to them under the pretense that it was going to Judaism. It was for the temple. But then they kept the money and split it up. And in that way, they they robbed the Jerusalem temple. But in Malachi, they robbed the temple. They actually robbed God by withholding their tithes and their offerings. They robbed people by cheating them at the temple. And don't get me started about all those guys on TV today who hypocritically line their own pockets and take money away from widows and poor people. Yeah, for the, they say they're, they're doing God's work. Well, we have to end there, but I have kind of a neat application. <coughs> and I borrowed this from R.C. Sproul. Because every time somebody does a survey, it asks, you know, why don't you go to church? One of the top five reasons is always, and it has been for years and years, they say, I don't go to church because the church is full of hypocrites. We've all heard that. Probably somebody has said to you. You know, that's a false accusation. 
Though no Christian achieves the full measure of sanctification and holiness in this life, we all struggle with ongoing sin, don't we? But it does not justly yield the verdict of hypocrisy. A hypocrite is someone who does things he claims he does not do. Outside observers of the Christian church see people who possess profess to be Christians and they observe that they sin. And since they see sin in the lives of Christians, they rush to the judgment that therefore these people are hypocrites. Now, if a person claims to be without sin and then demonstrates sin, surely that person is a hypocrite, as we've seen. But for a Christian simply to demonstrate that he or she is a sinner does not convict us of being a hypocrite. Because it's an inverted logic that goes like this. All hypocrites are sinners. John is a sinner. Therefore, John is a hypocrite. Now, anyone who knows the, the laws of logic knows that this is a syllogism that's not valid. If we simply change the charge to or from the church is full of hypocrites to the church is full of sinners, we would be very quick to plead guilty. And this is the cool thing. The church is the only institution that requires an admission of being a sinner in order to be a member. <laughs> do you ever think about that? Maybe we ought to add that to our bylaws. <laughs> we probably do somewhere in there. The church is filled with sinners because the church is the place where sinners come. We go before God. We find we confess our sins before God and we find redemption for those sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Whenever you admit that you are a sinner and that you are in need of the saving grace of Jesus Christ, you can't be a hypocrite. Just, just can't be. We can at the same time trust Christ for everything and be fully dependent upon him and admit our weakness, weaknesses and admit our sin and the same time trust in ourselves and some other religious system and ritual. Whenever we come to Christ, whether it's in our prayer life or in our worship or in a devotion to him and trust in him for all things, hypocrisy doesn't even come close. Shall we pray? Father, we do come to you right now and and I thank you that, that during this time of in your word and hearing your word and listening to you, Father, I, I trust that uh, where we have been guilty of sin, that uh, that has come to the surface, Father. And, and even at this moment right now, Lord, we bring that before you. Lord, we, we confess it. We, we know who we are and we know who we would be if it was not for Jesus Christ. Father, help us as a way of life to keep coming to you and laying all things at the foot of the cross, at the foot of the throne of our Savior, Jesus Christ, Lord. And, uh, Father, we also pray for those who have been or still are caught up in some kind of religious system or they're trusting in themselves, thinking that they can hide who they are and what they've done, and, and somehow that's going to make them right with God. Father, I just pray that uh, you would take away all the mask, all the veils, 
as you have promised in 2 Corinthians and other places where the veil has been wide open and we can come into your presence. Father, what is ever keeping somebody from coming to you, Father, we pray that you'd remove that right now. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.